when I was in school, uh, one of my favorite things about school, uh, well, I should say I didn't really have any favorite things about school, but if I were to pick what my favorite thing about school was, I would actually enjoy school, I think, if I went back now, but at the time, I didn't. I was always very good at taking tests, and I loved them. I love to this day. I love taking tests. Uh, I think I'm able to cram. So I wouldn't learn anything, wouldn't study anything. And then, you know, the night before, I'd stay up all night, uh, drink a ton of coffee, think about college especially, drink a ton of coffee. And I could uh, memorize things very quickly. You can memorize them very quickly. So I'd read the notes, you know, throughout the night, and it'd be this difficult test. People were cramming for months, and I'd, I'd take care of it in one night and, you know, ace the test. Now, every other assignment did not, did not go very well. But tests, I could, I could just do. If you were to ask me maybe a week later, uh, what the, if you gave me that same test a week later, I'd, I'd flunk it. I wouldn't remember. I wouldn't remember anything. So it was just a tactic I had. It was just, I was just able to get it in. If you ask me in tomorrow what I preached about today, I will have a total blank stare. I've already moved on to the next passage, and I just, I will not remember. Now I say that because God, we'll see it again today. God tests His people very, very differently than that. And I find in my life that uh, I, I do not ace. <laughs> these tests they're far more far more difficult far more challenging abram is perhaps tested by god uh, more than any other character in scripture over and over again god tests him okay a test is biblically speaking a test is a well one way to look at it is a purposeful providence when I say providence, I mean providence. If you if you look at your life as everything that happens is your in your life, good, bad, easy, painful. If you look at everything in your life as coming from the hand of God, you understand providence. That God has a will. That God has a desire. That God has a plan that He has decreed for your life, and the actual carrying out of that plan is His providence. So you say God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives, it's his providence. God takes away, it's his providence. And, and all glory and praise goes to him. If you talk like that, think like that, you understand providence. And so testing are these providences that God brings into our life that are filled with purpose. So circumstances come into your life, come into my life, and Satan's got an agenda. It is to tempt you to do evil, to turn from God, to run from him. And God has an agenda, and it is to work in you and to draw you close to him. Job is a great example. Here's Job being tempted by Satan and being tested by God. God's providence, his life unfolds in a way that he would not like it to unfold. And then we get this behind the scenes look and see that Satan has impure motives and God has pure motives. Well, we've already read in our study of Abram, we, we've seen God already test him. Last week in chapter 12, I think he probably failed a couple tests. And, and we're going to see him succeed in a test here today in chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be presented with Abram and Lot, who we've heard very little about, but Uncle Abe and, and his little nephew, Lot. And, and Abram, is, quite simply, Abram is going to pass the test and Lot is going to fail the test. Abram and Lot, both Christians, both, both men of God. However, Lot, 
was a terrible husband and a terrible father. We're going to see this. A terrible husband and a terrible father. That Abram makes a wise and faithful decision. So, let me pray and we'll get started in chapter 13. Father in heaven, uh, for your people who are gathered here today, we ask that you'd make us like Abraham. Make us like him, God, in how he was faithful. God, when he looked to you, when he raised his eyes and saw his help as coming from you, when he considered what would please you and what would honor you and sought out to do what would have been mocked, what would have seemed impossible, but for your glory, God, make us like that. Make us like that, God, because when you make us like that, you're conforming us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to be like Jesus. We want to honor you with our lives. We want you to be glorified in how we live. And we want the joy of Jesus. We want to have rock-solid, deep-rooted joy that is not twisted by circumstances. So these are our desires, God. Will you please, by your Holy Spirit, teach us now from this text in Genesis chapter 13. Show us your word. Show us the lives of these men and how you were gracious to them and worked in them and through them and move in us in the same way we pray. We ask this in the great name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open Genesis chapter 13. Verse 1 says this. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. So picking up where we left off in chapter 12, uh, things were not going well in Canaan where God had called Abram to live. A famine broke out. People are hungry. And so Abram heads down to Egypt. We're not sure if he was just faithfully trying to provide for his family or if he should have trusted God to provide in this promised land. And instead of trusting God, he took matters into his, his own hands and, and went down to Egypt. I, I think that's probably what he did. And you'll see why. You'll see why in a minute. Uh, but the famine apparently is over. And so he heads back home. His new home. Remember, his new home, his brand new home. Because he's been taken from way further east, away from his family. His brother has died. His father has died. He's just got his nephew with him. He's been taken to this new home. Left there to go to Egypt for a spell. Now he's headed back up. It's him, um, his wife, no kids. It's he and his wife. Uh, lots of servants, lots of people who work for him to help maintain and, and what he has. And he's got his nephew, Lot, with him who also has his servants. And they're making their way back into the land that God called Abram to. Verse 2. We learn something. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So he's coming back home with more than he had when he left. Uh, God is blessing him. Quite simply. God is blessing him. Now we do not take verses like this out of context and see if you love God, you'll get livestock and silver and gold. It doesn't work this way as we're going to see but for abram it went very well at this time physically for him and monetarily for him god blessed him not just him but his nephew lot if we look down at verse five lot came back and also had tons of flocks and herds and tents so here they come back home and they're 
They're prosperous. They're very wealthy men at this point. Verses 3 and 4. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now we should ask ourselves, why does Abram do this? Because he not only comes back into the land of Canaan and stops in this area of the Negev, he keeps going north. So he's up to something. He's going out of his way and he's journeying much farther north than he's even going to stay. So what he's doing is he's tracing his steps. And he's going back to the place where it says when he first got to this land, when he first landed here, okay, he built an altar, he gathered his family together, and they called upon the name of the Lord. And now here, some time later, he goes back and returns to that place, and he is calling on the name of the Lord. Now, I think what Abram is doing is sort of recommitting himself faithfully to God. I think there's repentance involved here. I think he recognizes his, his flight to Egypt as not trusting the Lord and his failure to protect his wife when he was in Egypt as an act of not trusting the Lord. And so he goes back to square one. He goes back to first base. He goes back to where this all began, right? Where he gathered his family together and they worshiped God and probably gave a speech like Joshua's for me and my family. We will serve the Lord. They left and things didn't go well. And so he comes back. He brings his family. Okay, we, we've done this in our family. We've done this in our family. We're like, boys, we need to, we need to have a meeting. We need to sit down. And maybe we've gathered up the family and, and mom and dad said, you know, we've slacked on some things. Uh, we need to repent to you and confess some sin to you. We haven't led you as well as we should have the last whatever period of time. But we want you to know that we're, we're recommitting this thing and some things are going to change and then we'll worship God together. Okay, I believe that's probably what Abram is doing. Now, when he goes back, it's this phrase that we've seen before. We first saw it with Seth. And it says, they called on the name of the Lord. When you see that phrase in your Bible, called upon the name of the Lord, what they're doing is very similar to what we do on a Sunday morning. Okay, so this is an open, uh, public, okay, crying out, calling out to God. This is corporate worship. So this is Abram and his family coming together and they're corporately worshiping God. Praising Him, crying out to Him. Now, this is significant. This is significant for us. I want you to understand and remember how, how important it is what we do when we gather together on a Sunday morning and worship God together. And I want you to see how important that is in God's Word because it's becoming less and less important in the Christian world. Right, you can worship God anywhere. Well, yeah, true. And I don't, I don't need to be a part of a church. And I am the church. And people get more and more disconnected from God's people and just end up outside of churches and just sort of picking their own teams and hanging out with the Christians that they want to hang out with and like until they dump them and move on to the next one. And they're never in a church. They're never with a body of believers that 
they're committed to and loving and serving that are under the authority of teachers and leaders. That's becoming more and more prevalent. Listen, Hebrews 10 says, do not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. But all the more as you see that they approach and come together, encourage one another. But the pattern was set in the very beginning. Okay, so in the very beginning here, okay, in the very beginning, we see that God's people were coming together openly, publicly, and regularly to worship God together. Here we're going to see that when Abraham is calling on the name of the Lord, it's sort of this transition time too. It's this transition time where he's just probably failed a couple tests that God has brought him. And now he's about to do very well in a test that God is going to bring him. And so there's some repentance involved. And then there's a setting his, his, his path straight and moving forward. These are the kinds of things that can and do happen when we come together and worship. One of the things that should happen when we come together and worship is we should be reflecting on our sin. We should be thinking about how we have failed God. How we have been faithless. It is a good thing if the word of God sinks in and penetrates and and causes us to realize our sin so that we can turn from our sin. This is, it should be, I should say. It should be. And at the risk of sounding presumptuous is this is a the safest place on earth to confess sin. Gathering together corporately with God's people. With the gospel of Jesus Christ as the centerpiece is the safest place on the planet to be to be real, to be authentic to be who you are, to confess who you are, to be open about your sin. I mean, we're resistant to those things. Because when we think about those things, when we understand our sinfulness, when we understand our weaknesses, that is a, if you're like me, that's a despairing place to go. That's a discouraging place to go. I'm usually doing just fine until I start thinking about myself. Personal reflection equals depression. It does. So if you're going to do that and you're going to confess that sin and be open about it, you better be in a place where the gospel is right in front of you. You better be in a place if you're going to hear the bad news, which you must hear, which you must know which you must understand. You are all dirty, rotten, and filthy. You've got to understand that. But we need to hear that in the context of the good news. What Christ has done to wash us. And so here is a place where you hear about the washing of sin, where you hear about the forgiveness of sins, where you hear about God bringing us safely through the waters of His judgment. A place where you hear the good news of, of Jesus Christ coming and dying in your place so that your sins may be forgiven. It's a place where you hear things like your sins can be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. This is what we need to hear. So this is a place of repentance. This is a place where we confess sin. This is a place where we are not afraid to see how deep the dark hole goes.
We can go there. We can go there because we have the cross to turn our focus to. We have the cross to turn our focus to. So the key, friends, right, is not to think more highly of yourselves. See, we want you, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be happy if you want to use those words. Okay, we're not masochists here. You love each other. You want the best for one another. You want one another to be joyful. You want one another to be happy. We, we want these things. That Now, the lie that we'll believe that is worldly and is not biblical, the lie is that in order for that to happen, you must think highly of yourself. And you must think good thoughts about yourself. Positivity. Right? Positivity. Now, the problem is, is that it's a delusion. It's a delusion. And so if you're like me, again, I try to think highly of myself and that goes well until I'm really conscious of who I am. (laughs) And then the bottom comes out. Friends, it is a lie. It is a lie that in order for you to have peace in your life and in order for you to have contentment in your life, in order for you to have joy in your life, that you have to think highly of yourselves. That's a lie. And it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's like trying to scriptures. It's like trying to hold oil in your hands. You cannot do it. It's elusive. Friends, the key is not to think highly of ourselves. The key is to not think of ourselves and to think of God and to look of God. You have low self-esteem. The answer is not higher self. The answer is not esteeming yourself. The answer that we desperately need is just forget about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. I am depressed too when I think about myself. Think about God. Look to God. So we go there and we confess it just long enough to make the cross glorious. And exactly what we need. And we we turn to Christ. So we look within, we confess sin, we repent, then forgetting what is behind, we look forward and we trust in Christ. And this is the pattern. This is what Abram is doing. Okay, so he goes back, he calls upon the name of the Lord. Verses 5 through 7. We start to get in the, to the test here. How is God going to test him now? And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And so there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time also, right, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So they have this problem because Abram and Lot have become so prosperous it's no longer working for them to live together. You know, whose herds belong to who? Uh, whose turn is it at the, the water hole? Whose, whose servants are responsible for what? And it's just becoming, it's just becoming a mess. And, and the risk that Abram's going to see is that this is going to... Remember, they're family. They're family. And so contempt is, gonna, is starting to, to breed here. And so he says, we need to get some distance between us. Okay, good fences make good neighbors. So we need to we need to get some distance between us so that this doesn't this doesn't wipe out our our family. That's that's the concern. And then not only do you have these two prosperous, growing families that are trying to you know live in the same place. There's also the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They're also in in this land. So this is 
This is what Abram does. This is his his response. Verses 8 through, uh, well, let's just read a bit. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. See, that's the, that's the concern. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, right? We're family, he's saying. Let's not let this pull us apart. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will, I will go to the left. So we'll, we'll come back to that and read some more and, and see the details of how Abram deals with this. But, but here's what's happening. Abram is being tested again. Okay, he's having God's providence, which is full of purpose. Okay, his life is moving in a way that he has a decision that he needs to make. How is he going to handle this situation? Okay, we read about all of God's people in Scripture being tested like this. Uh, Abram is tested. Job. Job was tested. Jonah was tested. All of us are tested. Connect what you're seeing happening to to Abram to our own life in that God also brings tests our way. You can either listen or turn there, but 1 Peter 1 talks about this. And we'll read 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. God also, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, God is testing you a lot. Probably testing you right now. This is what 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 says. And I want us to get a handle on what, what, is, what does this mean? What are, what, are, what are tests from God? Verse 6 very simply gives us the what of a test from God. You have been grieved by various trials. There you go. That's a test. That is a test. You, you and I in this lifetime, we will have various trials what kinds of trials? Ones that will grieve us. So it will be difficult. In other words, it will be painful. And we understand from God's Word that, that whose hand ultimately is behind every one of these trials that is grieving you? God's hand. God's hand ultimately is behind every trial that you and I go through. Every test that you and I go through. God's hand ultimately is behind it. Now, His hand is not the only hand behind it, but His hand is the ultimate hand behind it. In other words, sometimes you have a circumstance that is grieving you, and it's your fault. It is at your hand. You were foolish, and now you're reaping what you've sown. Right, so you, you had a hand in it, in other words. Uh, another way to look at it is that Satan has a hand in it. You're going through something very difficult. You're tempted to turn from God, to run from Him, to dishonor Him, to disobey Him. Is God doing that? James 1 makes it very clear that God tempts no one. What would He tempt you with? God doesn't have anything wicked to dangle out in front of you. Satan is the tempter. So these are Satan's motives. So when we're going through these trials that are grieving us, Satan is tempting us and God is testing us. Satan's trying to lure us into evil and God is working in us for our good. So get a trial in your mind. Maybe it's easy because it's going on right now. Maybe it's in the last few years. You have been grieved by various trials so that 
So now we get to what is a test really from God? What's he what's he up to here? Why is he grieving me? Why is this trial here? So that verses seven through nine. It's it's a mouthful. Just listen. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that kind of faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That was big. So let's reverse it. And let me just say that scripture where we start with the end. And then we go back and ask, how do we get there? So read the read the words. I mean, hear the words in first Peter one glory, love, belief, joy, salvation. These are the the ends. God is working something in your life. And the end is you will love him more. You will love him more. You will believe in him. You don't see him, but you love him more. You don't see him, but you believe in him more. How's this going to happen? You don't see him, but you become more joyful, become more happy. This is what everybody wants. Become more content, more at peace. What kind of joy? Inexpressible, Peter says. Describe it to me. Good luck. That's what Peter's saying. Well, how happy are we talking about? I can't. I'm done. Inexpressible. There are not, we say things like there are not words to express that kind of joy and ultimate what's the ultimate outcome the salvation of your soul salvation of your soul your your love for god your belief in him and your joy maximized that's the end and how does god get us there by grieving us through various trials now that is not Worldly wisdom. That is God wisdom. But it is how God has made us. It is how God has made us. Let's ask the question then, with that understanding of a, a, a test and a trial, why is God testing Abram so much? Because he loves him so much. Because what does the trial produce? What does the what does the testing produce? What does the pain and the suffering produce? Greater love for God. Greater belief in God. Greater joy. Salvation of our souls. So here's God testing Abram and all those he loves. All those he loves over and over. Why? Because he loves him. What if I make the question more personal? For you and the trial that you're going through and the way that God is testing you right now. Why are you, Christian, grieved by various trials? What's the biblical answer? Because God loves you so much. Because God loves you. God loves you. 
This is not worldly wisdom. We think if you love me, you will make much of me and you will give me everything I want yesterday. And that's how you love me. And I feel loved when you're making my, I, I, I feel loved when once a year you, I sit in a chair and you all gather around and you sing to me. Happy birthday, right? That's my worship day. You worship me. You sit around and sing me songs and then what do you do? Come on, Magi, bring me gifts. Tell me how great, write, write me cards. Tell me how wonderful I am. I know. But let me hear it again. And we feel loved. We feel loved. And so we may think, or the world may think that, okay, God, if you really love me, then you'll give me what I want. Things will go my way. This will go differently. I'll get the promotion. The house will sell. The relationship will work out. This will get restored. The disease will be healed. And we kind of hold out and think because we've bought into a worldly concept of love. So, God, if you love me, you're going to make and, and then you only feel loved when things are going your way. And you only love God when things are going your way. And when things aren't going well, we struggle to love God and we struggle to have joy. And now that is all rooted in this total worldly understanding of love and joy and where it comes from. If you really love somebody and if God really loves somebody, love is living towards someone in such a way that they become less and less consumed with themselves and more and more consumed with God. If you love somebody, you will help them get their eyes off themselves and their eyes on God because that is where joy is found. And it is a lie to, to, believe, to believe that is held out there for us that I will be happy if. If I just get this and if it goes my way and if I have this much money and these kinds of possessions and the family goes the way I want it to and none of my friends stab me in the back and circumstances play out, if, if that happens, then I will be happy. Friends, that is a lie from the pits of hell. And you will find if you're searching in this world, grabbing at everything this world has to offer in hopes that it's going to bring contentment and happiness. If you haven't learned it already, you're going to find that joy is still completely and totally elusive to you. And you'll be one of many who on their deathbed says, what for? People who have everything the world has to offer them. That is not the way to joy. That is not the way to happiness. The way to joy is God. Is being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Through trials. Through trials. That grieve you. Through pain. Just how human beings are. Things going your way all the time and you getting everything you want. I mean, parents of little kids know this. We've tried that. It doesn't go well. It is not what's going to make you happy. It's not what's going to make you happy. 
And we find that it is through the pain. It is through the suffering. It is through the difficulty. Ask any Christian who's learned this. It is through the suffering and through the pain and through the trials and through the tests that our joy becomes full. That our contentment becomes full. So what's God doing with Abram here? Testing him over and over and over again. Be sure of this. He loves him. He loves him. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. So we're going to see how what Abram does and what Lot does. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord. Probably means the Garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as, or some of your translations may say, near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom, they were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So here's the test. Remember what God has told Abram. Abram will continue to be tested with this. God has made promises of all that He's going to do for Abram. Two of them are, I'm going to give you tons of kids and I'm going to give you land. And Abram's got no land and no kids. And so there's going to be a temptation to take matters into his own hands. And we've probably already seen him try to take matters into his own hands. So now here they are, looking east, knowing west. They've got to separate at this point. Okay, in one direction, doesn't look so good. The other direction looks sweet. Looks great. Looks like Egypt where they fled when there was a famine here. Uh, it reminds them of the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's just this, this beautiful, perfect land that is fruitful and productive. And so what's Abram going to do at this point? He makes an amazing decision. He could say, well, I'm the uncle and you're the nephew. So cry uncle and go, go over there. Good luck to you. Then I'm going to go over here where the land is, is plentiful. Instead, what he does is totally against custom. Abram is gracious to Lot. This is what he does. He extends grace to Lot and then he trusts that God is going to work this out. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Well, if God said, I'm going to have a lot of land and here are the choices and this is clearly where I need to go. Instead, what he does is he puts it in God's hands. He does something good. He's gracious to his nephew Lot. Total act of humility here. He defers to him and says, you, you choose. And whichever way you go, I'm going to go the other way. Knowing, of course, what, what, what the choice is probably going to be. And he is trusting that the Lord is going to provide, that the Lord is going to keep his promise as well. Abram most likely also knows the truth that we find about the East in verse 12 and verse 13. And he makes a faithful and wise decision. Remember what verse 12 and 13 said? Lot settled among the cities of the valley 
and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Abram knows this. Abram makes a wise decision, a faithful decision. He's gracious to Lot. This is how Abram handles the test. Lot, not so good. Lot, not so good. What does Lot do? The first thing that might surprise you, I think I alluded to it at least earlier, is that Lot's a Christian. When I say Christian, I mean he's in Christ. He's a, he's a believer. He's reconciled to God. His sins were paid for through the death of Jesus Christ. So it's happening in the Old Testament, New Testament, looking forward to Christ. We're looking back to Christ. Lots of Christian. Peter calls him righteous Lot. Now, there not, there's not a lot of righteous activity in Lot's life that is highlighted in the Bible. But I want you to keep that in mind and I want you to keep this perspective as we're reading about Lot's decisions and in weeks to come. Remember that this is a a man who believes in God, who is faithful to God, who trusts God. But see how so much of his life is a total train wreck. And what he does here is he chooses a shiny apple from a tree of death. He chooses a shiny apple from a tree of death. The apple looked good. Here's this fertile valley. Everything looks wonderful physically, monetarily. This is going to go well. But there is something that is terribly wrong with where he's taken his family. So it's like a shiny apple on a tree of death. The way we could boil down the application here is, 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 is in a saying, and that is do not pitch your tent near Sodom. That's that's the moral of this story. Do not pitch your tent near Sodom. So what happens in Lot's life? I'll just tell you a few things that happen down the road so that you can see the progression. How do things start to go wrong in his life? It starts here. It starts with chapter 13, verse 10, just looking toward Sodom. This is how it begins. Just he's just looking Not touching, not moving, not making any decisions yet. He's just looking towards Sodom and he sees that it looks nice. So in verse 10, he's looking toward Sodom. In verse 12, he pitched his tent near Sodom. Okay, Christians are famous for pitching their tents near Sodom. Right. It starts with little Christian high school students. Right. Who start dating one another and then go to their youth pastor and say, how far can we go without sinning? Which is like the worst question you could possibly ever ask. Now, we laugh, but we do the same. We just have grown up versions of that. Like, how close can I get? How close can I get without getting burned? How close can I get to the line without disqualifying myself? This is this is not what holiness is. It's not what holiness is. So this is what Lot does. 
Well, I'm certainly not going to move my family into that wretched city. All right, we'll find a nice suburb. (laughs) And so he pitched his tent near Sodom. So very interesting. By the time you get to chapter 14, verse 12, guess where Lot and his family are? They're in Sodom. You get to chapter 19, and guess where Lot is? In the gateway of Sodom. That means he is now in a place of influence in the city. He has merged himself completely with the city. Now, I know we, we talk and we say things, and, and, and there is no indication here that he uses his influence for anything good in this city. As we're going to read, it looks like he's the only believer in the whole town. So it's not like he's getting that position so that he can use it for you know, God's glory. But do you, see the, do you see his downfall? He looks towards Sodom. He gets close to Sodom. He moves in to Sodom. And he becomes one with Sodom. This is the progression of Lot. So what you see that he's doing is repeating the sin of his forefathers. He's doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden, isn't he? He's living by sight and not by faith. Now, God said, don't eat that fruit, Adam and Eve. Or you will surely die. And they didn't believe God. They didn't believe him. Instead, they lived by sight. You know, they, they, they've got logical. Well, that sure doesn't look like a, tr- a fruit that's going to kill me. I'm sure they'd be like all nasty and gross and scaly. You know, like the apples I find under my boy's bed six months after they've eaten them. Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like that. Just gnarly and just fruit pus and just, just disgusting, right? And this sure doesn't. But what was the temptation in the garden? Remember, that was not, it was not how it looked. We even get insight into how they reasoned. They saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Looks good. So what do they do? They live by sight, not by faith. They didn't believe God. We must have misunderstood him. We must be misinterpreting the verse. And so they ate the fruit. What does Lot do? He looks east. It I know I've heard the city is wicked. I've heard there's wickedness there. I've heard it may not go, but it sure looks wonderful. And so here he is on the threshold of his major decision, and he walks by sight. He doesn't walk by faith. So he makes a decision that, that, that is materially sound and spiritually boneheaded. He's not thinking spiritually. He's thinking physically. He's thinking monetarily, and he's not taking anything else into account. Now, I'm sure he did what also we can be guilty of, where he could, you can, you can hear Lot just spiritualizing his decision. I'm going to move my family. You know, we're going to go in into the heart of this wicked city. But you know what? What a great opportunity to be a witness. Is that really why you're moving there, Lot? Is that really what you're up to? You want to be a witness there? Right? The Christian gal, single, 
Well, he's not a Christian. But I see a lot of potential. <laughs> and so what's, what's the intention? I'm going to witness to him. Are you? Are you? Are you really just this sweet little missionary? Is that really what you're doing? Or are you pitching your tent near Sodom? And we can spiritualize it all day. He's not being faithful. Now here's, here's what we find as we keep reading. The cost for Lot is tremendous. I said it before. Lot was a, a believer apparently. But he was a terrible father. And he was a terrible husband. He's terrible. This should frighten believers. It should, it should frighten us as, as, as believers because we should understand that Christians can still kill families. Oh, I'm a Christian and, and I love God and so I don't really need to be responsible. Have you ever read the story of David? I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a pretty terrible husband and father. But he was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. That's God's commentary on David. What we're going to see in the life of Lot is that he is going to lose everything. He's going to take his wife in the city. He's going to have his two girls in the city. And their hearts are going to be pulled right into the city to the point when God tells him to leave. His wife doesn't even want to leave. And his daughters are all, all screwed up. All screwed up. Because he made a decision that was practical. And made logical sense. But he didn't bother to think about the spiritual implications of what he's doing. And friends, I don't want you to reap what he reaps. It is going to be one of the saddest stories in our Bible. And it's coming up today because you can trace it back to this decision he makes right here to pitch his tent near Sodom. Now, let me say one thing that I hope will be encouraging before we read verses 14 through 18. Psalm chapter 1, I think, is helpful. We'll look at another scripture in a minute after we read verses 14 through 18. And this is a helpful scripture to read and to think on when you are like Abram, like Lot, on the front side of a decision. And then we're going to see the backside of the decision and, and what God does with Abram. And we've got a scripture there, too. But when you're on the front side of a decision, here are the kinds of things that we need to remember so that we may honor and glorify God. Psalm chapter one. You've probably heard it before. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, 
The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is a way that pleases God. There is a way that does not please God. My plea with you would be, as you're navigating through life to use wisdom and not folly, look beyond an inch deep. Consider the decisions that are before you. Consider the spiritual implications of what you're doing. Don't assume because the stars are aligning. And practically, it makes sense that it is best for your life or that it is best for your family's life. Because everything that Lot does physically makes sense. And it will not go well for him. I remember one time I was so I was so impressed by this, and I think it's only happened one time um, where I received an email uh, from a man who was considering moving his family to the area. But before he moved his family to this area, he wanted to make sure there was a healthy church. That is a great example of how we should think but how we rarely think. Oh, well, there's a job and there's a raise and there's, it's just a no-brainer. Why do I even need to think about it? And I know many people, some who have left here, some friends I know and others who have done that, chasing something that made good practical sense and then ended up in a wasteland. And they may have had good intentions and we'll start something or we'll help something become better or we'll minister or we'll evangelize. And what ended up happening is their family paid the price. Their family paid the price for their good intentions. So we must think through the decisions that we make, especially men. There's a challenge here. Being in a position head of a household the way Lot was. What is the motive and are we thinking what is truly best for our soul and the souls of those that God has entrusted to our care? Okay, so Abram passed the test. And this is great. And then God comes to him. So he's not teetering, right? And then God comes in and gives him his word again and compels him and reminds him then. Abram makes a great, faithful decision. And then he's, he's downcast. His head is down like, oh, what did I do? Oh, no, he's watching Lot, you know, heading down the yellow brick road. And everything looks great. And here he is. And, and God comes to him. Gracious, loving, tender God. And the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. In other words, look everywhere. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Faithful again. God said it. It's enough. He believes God. Friends, don't. 
miss this? And what is God telling him? What is God promising him? I'm going to give you all the land. I'm going to give you all these descendants. You're going to have a lot of land. You're going to have a lot of kids. Who is he saying this to? A homeless, barren man. That's who he's saying it to. No home, no kids. So if Abram is going to live, it's going to have to. Can it be by sight? It cannot be by sight. I'm going to give you offspring. Oh, you mean this little one? There's no little one. This land, there is no land. It looks like Lot just took the sweet spot. And so here he is, right? His head is down. His head is down. He's walking by faith. And God says, lift your eyes up. Let me remind you. So listen, this is what God continues to do for you Christians. This is what he does for us. This is what is so wonderful, right? You know what Abram did not have. He did not have this. He did not have this. This is how God speaks to us. Through his word. Do we realize how accessible God has made his promises? Abram had to wait for a word from the Lord. When your head's down, you 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 could just turn to Psalm 121. Like right now, on your phone, you get there quicker than I could. And you can see, I lift my eyes up. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you. Have you think that those were just words written by David on paper and that's all they were? You are missing it. If you don't understand that these words were were penned from the mind of God for you right now. There is no difference between the power of God's word when you read God's word and the power of God's word coming to a prophet in the Old Testament. And we let dust collect on this. I mean, that's my conviction, right? And I lose this. And I don't open this. And then I don't have joy. Right? We see so dimly, don't we? And we walk around and say, I don't know why I don't have joy. Well, maybe. Maybe. We're not connected to any joy. To God's word, his truth. I'll close with a scripture from Isaiah chapter 40. I'll read verses 26 through 28. As I'm sure you can see, I mean, Lot, Lot, Lot looked to earth and Abram looked to heaven. I mean, that's one way of looking at what, what, we, what we read. Now, some of you aren't on the front side of a decision. You're on the back side of a decision. And, and maybe it's a decision that has, you were faithful and you were wise. And maybe you were faithless and you were Foolish. I think this scripture is helpful after the, the, the wise ones and the foolish ones. The faithful ones and the faithless ones. You know, what now? 
Well, it would be good for us to to remember that our faith is in God. And it would be good for us to remember that it is impossible for us to thwart God's plans. Impossible. It would be good for us to remember that when you've got all these things in front of you that are totally impossible, that they're all possible because of God. And I think Isaiah 40, verses 26 through 28, I'll close with this, is helpful to that end. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you, God, for the the light to our path. Your word is. God, I would ask for all of us who are here in this room that you would cause us to treasure your word the way we should to value Your Word the way we should and that You would wield Your Word by Your Spirit and change us, God. Make us more faithful. Give us more faith. Make us more holy. Make us more like You for Your glory, God, and for our good. God, I'm sure there's people too who are listening to these words and are just not sure and who don't believe this truth or who are questioning this truth or doubting. So God, I pray that if there are knowing that we're born with spiritual blinders on, just materially gullible, God, craving lies. God, I pray that if there are some like that here, that You would remove those blinders. They would see You for who You are. They would hear the Gospel for what it is. That they would turn to You and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.